Hey, what's up, Liberty lovers? This is your Felony Friday host, John Odermatt, coming at you real quickly. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to tell you about another great podcast, The Brian Nichols Show. Brian previously has been on our program, on our flagship program, hosted by Mark Clare. Mark, in turn, has been on his show as well. The Brian Nichols Show's, what do you expect? Who is it for? It's for folks who are tired of partisan politics. Who is not tired of partisan politics right now? And it's for people who are interested in finding objective news without the media narrative. For those of you who are looking to take the next step and learn how to sell liberty from an expert sales professional. Brian's had some awesome guests on his show over the years. Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Matt Kibbe, Jason Stapleton, Larry Sharp. He has not had me on, so maybe he will correct that and take it up another notch and make his show even better. Regardless, Brian has a great program. Check it out. There's no better time to be checking out his show as he has just expanded to two shows per week. The Brian Nichols Show. Check it out wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here at Lions of Liberty, we have a bit of a uh, variety channel. My Friday show, Felony Friday, is one of the great shows, but there's two more. On Monday and Wednesday, Monday's show hosted by Mark Clare, Wednesday by Brian McWilliams. They both bring their own flavor and flair to the podcasting game. Check those out. Subscribe to Lions of Liberty on your podcasting app to get all three. And today's episode of Felony Friday is another great one. I have an awesome guest lined up who is going to share another story of injustice in the criminal justice system. And we're going to shine a light and we are going to keep the momentum going, keep the momentum going for change in the criminal justice system. So share this show, tell a friend, text it to a friend, tell a stranger on the street. I don't care. Enjoy today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Richard Midkift. Richard was sentenced to 38 years in prison for felony murder, and that was related to a 1996 robbery and murder, and Richard was the uh, the getaway car driver. He was released from his sentence um, after a series of Supreme Court rulings um, in the 2010s, affording prisoners who were sentenced to long terms as juveniles the right to have their cases reviewed. <clears throat> Recently, uh, the now Florida Attorney General um, was trying to get him back in prison, and we'll talk about that now. We'll talk about his story. And uh, Richard, welcome to Felony Friday. Hey, John, how you doing? It's nice to meet you and finally connect with you. Yeah, great to, to connect with you, too. I know we've gone, we've gone back and forth trying to set this up, and I'm really, uh, really happy to be able to have you on the show where you can uh, share your story with my audience because I know it is, it's important and it's kind of unique uh, compared to a lot of the uh, types of cases um, that I talk about here. So I guess before we get into talking about your case – if you could just give my audience sort of a little background about yourself, um, you know, before you did time in prison, just kind of share what your life was like, what your life was like growing up. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. I was, um, I'm from Orlando, Florida, and I grew up in a small town called Apopka. And, you know, my 
my young childhood was like any other kid going out, playing, swimming. Um, I lived to ride a skateboard. That was like my passion. You know, everybody else like Michael Jordan. I like Tony Hawk, you know, so that, that was my thing. That's what I was into. When I was a child, my, my father passed away young and I had a series of stepfathers that were both physically and psychologically abusive that really impacted my young years of life. So much so that my one stepfather had beat me at a time when um, when I was in about the fourth or fifth grade. And that resulted in me moving around, staying with different family members and, and just trying to figure out who I am and, and what was wrong with me that, that something like that would happen. When I was in the seventh grade, I came back to Central Florida and through a series of unfortunate unfortunate events, I found myself pretty much homeless in seventh grade. And, you know, when you're you're that age, you don't know what else to do but to go to school because that's what seventh graders do. Mm. So I went to school and I stayed with different friends. And for the for the longest time, you know, I, I don't even remember how I ate meals or anything that other than that, a friend of mine that I went to school with would buy me school lunch every day. Being in that environment and not having a stable upbringing, that eventually led me to the streets, which eventually led me to, you know, doing drugs, hanging out, hanging out with an older crowd. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to, to say this as far as I'm concerned, that kids are constantly looking for that affirmation from home. And if they don't find it in home, they're going to find it somewhere else. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was important. I felt like I was somebody that mattered. And I didn't really understand at the time was I was just deluding myself by, you know, using drugs, which spiraled into other drugs, which spiraled into other activity and um, just made a real mess of my life. So that was my childhood, which led up to me being six. Um, you know, a lot of people in my situation, they can make excuses and say, you know, this was a one-time event, a mistake, an unfortunate mishap, something like that. But that's not the case. I, I made a series of bad decisions in my life that led to this decision where I participated in a robbery that resulted in somebody being shot. And to my co-defendant's credit, he didn't go in there with any intention or attempt or desire to shoot anybody. He went in there, another dumb kid like myself, going through his own mental health issues and, and family issues and being on drugs and ended up getting in a fight with the guy and the gun discharged. How, how old were you when this happened? I was 19 and my co-defendant was 17. So just to turn the, <clears throat> turn the clock back for a minute, you were saying in seventh grade, you kind of ended up on the streets and you were, you were living with friends. Did you have any sort of like uh, guardians or parental figures in your life at, at that time? I mean, I, I, I'm the youngest of six kids, so I had, you know, five older siblings. They're doing what they're doing, you know, living their lives and things like that. My mom had remarried and, you know, maybe I was a little bit jaded from the previous stepfather and the abuse that I, I suffered at his hands. But I went into that situation with a, a very cold heart towards any stepfathers and he and I didn't hit it off. So. Essentially, he told me I could get out. And um, that resulted in me having to raise myself and having to figure out how I'm going to do the things that I need to do in life. And unfortunately, you know, I, I chose 
crime. I chose selling drugs and using drugs and things like that. And, you know, now I'm 44 years old now, and I have some nieces and nephews that are not in the best living circumstances, but they're my biggest heroes because these young kids, even through the trials that they're going through, they're honor roll students. They're, they're doing everything that they can the right way to get out of the situation. You know, and I, I can't take credit for it, but I'd like to say that I contributed to that by writing them from prison all the years of their life, telling them, listen, school's important no matter how hard it gets. Keep, keep to it. Stay the course. And my one niece who's not in the best situation as far as living she told me when she was like in sixth or seventh grade that the only way that she could get out of the mess that she's in is to go to school, get a good education, to get a good job. So now that I'm home, I always make it a point to to go and get them and take them and, and talk to them and spend time with them. And, you know, it's just I, I these choices. So I definitely want to give a shout out to those young people doing the right thing. And they could very easily be doing the wrong thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the the story that you told there is it's it's pretty common for uh, you know a path that leads to uh, incarceration um, because people are like you said are looking for uh, validation. You know, I mean, you're looking for uh, you know people people to look for to look to you um, for uh, for solutions. And yeah, when you get into into selling drugs, and you know, we can talk about the if the, if drugs should be legal or not, but. Um, being in that situation and the violence that becomes associated with, uh, with the you know the current prohibition of uh, of drugs that's that's a very real thing and a dangerous dangerous place to be. But turning uh, so turning back forward to when you get in the situation, you're 19 years old. Uh, what what was what was going through your your mind as this is setting in? You you realize that you're you know you're going you're facing this trial. I don't know if you if you realize how much time you'll be. Uh, spending in prison right off the bat, but what what was your mindset at that point in time? Uh, it was like, you know, you you hit a spot in your life where you know you've hit rock bottom, and I knew that I was at rock bottom. It's like everything prior to that, we could sweep it under the rug, we could go hide it in the corner, but this is something that you can't do that. A person lost their life, and I just felt my whole world come down around me, and it wasn't until about two months later when we were actually arrested, and that was like, the, the final nail in the coffin for me, realizing that, you know, if, if something doesn't give, if something doesn't change in my life, no matter what the outcome of this situation is, then I'm never going to make it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know and I didn't understand what the ramifications were going to be. And I had never been arrested before. I'd never been in jail before. And here it is. I'm, I'm booked on murder and robbery. And I'll never forget it. I go into the, the county jail in this old dingy holding cell. And this old um, correctional officer comes in there to check on me. And the first thing I asked him is, when can I make bond? And um, he looked at me. He said, son, do you smoke? And I said, yes, sir. And he pulled a pack of cigarettes out of his pocket and set it down and said, uh, help yourself. I'm smoking cigarettes. And he explained to me what was going to happen and that I would not be getting a bond. And um, I made a decision right then that. No matter what the outcome of my situation was going to be, I was going to use my time and the rest of my life to better myself and then one day be able to help other people, be able to help other young people that may find themselves in here. But hopefully before they find themselves where I'm currently sitting at, 
in a county jail holding cell waiting to go to general population. So at what point, in, so you ended up, you ended up serving how many years? I served 23 years, two months in the Florida Department of Corrections. And that was on a, what was the original sentence? Um, my original sentence was 38 years for second degree murder, armed robbery and armed burglary. And they ran all of those sentences together for one combined 38 year sentence. So you knew going in that you were going to be serving significant time. What was it that got you through uh, that, that time in prison? What did you lean on? Well, you know, people, people in society, they often say that dog is man's best friend. In prison, books are man's best friend. Hmm. So I essentially, I hit the prison system with no education, no formal education. I dropped out of school in eighth grade and just, you know, partied, hung out on the streets and, and lived my life for me, not caring about tomorrow. But when I got into prison, the first thing I had to do was teach myself some essential tools like reading and writing better and, and you know, how to do something more than basic math. Um, I started making the classics my best friends. I started reading history and literature and just anything that I could get my hands on because for the first time that I can remember, I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed using my mind for something positive. So I would say the number one thing that really helped me get through was education. And it, it's it's been a real platform that I've run on since I've been incarcerated. And I've done some research on it where, you know, uh, a criminal or a defendant or an inmate, whatever you want to call them, somebody incarcerated who receives an associate's degree, the recidivism rate drops to 14%. A prisoner with a bachelor's degree drops to 7% and with a master's is 0%. So I, I see so much worth and value in education. So I just kept studying and studying and studying. And unfortunately, in 94, in 95, actually, they took away all Pell Grants for prisoners. So there was no real outlet for me to gain an education. You know, there was no programs that I was really accepted into because of the amount of time that I had. So it was up to me to start teaching myself. And that's pretty much how I spent all my time. You said that was in 94 they took away Pell, Pell Grants? Uh, 94, they, they passed the bill. They signed it in the law into 1995. Okay. Was that the notorious 94 crime bill that everyone talks yes, about? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, okay. it is. I didn't realize that was a part of that. That's Yeah. That's if, if you um, really dig into it, a lot of stuff happened in 1995 that was detrimental to people incarcerated. One of the biggest things was the passing of ADEPA, which is the Anti-Effective Death Penalty Act which limits people to one year after their sentence becomes final to file a federal habeas corpus. And um, I can't tell you how many people I've had to tell in prison that they can't file a, a federal habe because they're out of time. So um, very, very significant changes happened in the 90s. And one of those were the, the Tough on Crime Act. So in Florida, essentially what happened was they took the sentencing guidelines and they flipped them. So a sentence that normally would carry seven to 15 years now carried 15 to 32 years. Wow. It's and then on top, of, on top of that, they passed the 85% where previously you would serve 65%. So now you have the same amount of people going into prison, but for a longer sentence, serving a longer amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, well, that's, I guess, yeah, that was really sort of the, the point in time that just accelerated our huge, you know, 
prison problem, the, the overpopulation and the, the overcriminalization, um, po- pointing back to that. But to turn, to turn back to you and uh, the time that you served, when did you get out of prison then? I got out of prison July 21st, 2019. Okay. So, so just over, over a year ago. A little ago. over a year ago. Mm-hmm. A little over a year ago. And that was, walk us through what, uh, how you were able to get out. I, I know there, there was a change in the Supreme Court rulings, correct? Or? There, there was. In um, 2010, 2011, the U.S. Supreme Court made a ruling in Graham versus Florida declaring it unconstitutional to give a juvenile offender life without parole for a non-homicide offense. A few years after that, they then ruled again in Graham and Miller versus Alabama that even a juvenile offender who commits a homicide and receives a life sentence first must have a, like a mitigation hearing. Because under Florida law, if you're charged with first-degree murder, there's only two sentences that you can receive, life or death. And if you're a juvenile, there's only one sentence you can receive, life. So in Florida, what they did in 2014 is they codified new statute, 921.140 or 1402, and it essentially set up guidelines to where juvenile offenders could seek resentencing and judicial review before the courts. In 2018, my co-defendant sought that review and was subsequently released early. My point of contention came from the point that when we were sentenced, we were sentenced together and we had struck a deal where they stipulated in his plea agreement that he would serve a longer prison sentence than me. So when he was released, I argued that point and the lower court or the state court agreed with me and released me early. Hey, let's take a real quick commercial break. I want to tell you about a great coffee company, Lorenzotti Italy. This is a company started by libertarians, two guys, Robert and Zach. They couldn't be more different, but they both love coffee. And they love that experience of that small, independent coffee shop. They actually love it so much that not only are they a coffee company that sells delicious coffee, but they help entrepreneurs and coffee enthusiasts set up their own business with equipment and financing and all that stuff. So what you can do to help them out and to help us out a little bit is you can go to laurenzotti.coffee, that's .coffee, not .com, and enter discount code LIONS for 10% off your order. Check it out at Lorenzotti Italy. Coffee is their passion. They're just two guys who want to bring an excellent coffee to the U.S. and make business easier and more profitable for the passionate entrepreneurs who provide the best coffee experiences for their patrons. Check it out, Lorenzotti.coffee. Enter promo code LIONS for 10% off. Is, is that co- I've never heard of that before. So the plea deal actually had it written in that you would serve less time than your co-defendant. It did. It, it did. And it's, is that uh, common? No, it's really not. You know, I've talked to some other attorneys who've been practicing law for 30, 35 years, and they said, I've never seen anything like this. The dynamics that had to come together for this situation are so unique and case specific that it will probably never happen again. Wow. So that's how you were able to get out. And so you got a little bit over a year ago. Walk us through how that was for you, you know, reintegrating back into society. What was, well, I guess, first of all, what was it like when you, when you found out that you were, that you were going to be getting out? Oh, wow. It was, um, so I had gone to court and the, the judge had reserved ruling and 
So I go back to prison and I never thought I'd see the prison again. I actually thought that I would be released straight from the county jail. I get back to prison. I'm there about 100 days. And in prison, we have the, the JPay system where you can get emails. So every Friday, my attorney would email me and I'd get the same message. Hey, nothing yet. You know, we're still waiting. And um, it was this one Friday that I got out. I, I go to work about 6.30 in the morning and I'd come back to my dorm about 11, 11.15. I'd get something to eat, check my emails and go back to work. And I, I grab my tablet, I check my emails and I'm like, oh, oh, another another email from my attorney saying nothing yet. And that wasn't the case. It said, we just got the order. The judge said you're to be released forthwith. And I just, I started shaking. Um, a very good friend of mine, he, uh, he came down and saw me and I, I just, I had tears in my eyes. He's like, bro, what's wrong? And I handed him my tablet and he gave me a big hug. And then the rest of the day was just a blur, you know, back and forth. I had to go to different places within the prison to process out, get a new photo, sign some papers. And um, I was released about 6.45 that Friday afternoon. And it was, um, it was awesome, but it was also terrifying. You know, to to actually walk out of place that you spent more time in than you had previously previously spent on the planet. That's um that that was that was pretty epic to me. And uh, a friend of mine who I was actually incarcerated with was the one who came to pick me up. And he, he takes me to the gas station. He, and he's very matter of fact. He's like, all right, so we're going to get some gas. And we're going to go in the store, get you something to drink. And I'm looking at him like a deer in headlights. And he's like, so get out of the car. And I was like, bro, I, I don't want to get out of the car. He's like, no, you're getting out of the car. And it was, it was just, you know, I look back on it, I laugh, but I was just like, why are you doing this to me? You're just throwing me in the ocean. But um, so we went in there and probably the first shock was walking into this. I, th I think it was a racetrack or a Wawa. And I saw all of these selections and it was like sensory overload. Like he's like, and I just grabbed the first thing I saw and gave it to him and, and went back to the car. And, um, you know, we went from there. He took me to get something to eat, took me to see my mom. And you know, I went through the weekend doing different things I needed to do. And then Monday I went and reported for probation, got everything situated. And trying to figure out technology was probably the toughest thing and one of the things that frustrated me the most. Mm -hmm. But um, on my eighth day out, my uh, – former mentor in the law library and now owner and operator of prisoner connections paralegal service called me and said, Hey, do you have your computer? I said, yeah. He said, good. I'm sending you some emails, get to work. And I've been working doing that 40, 50, sometimes 60 hours a week since I come home. Oh, wow. So that's kept you busy. Um, so specifically with technology, what was the, what's been the hardest thing for you to pick up? Well, when I first came home, just getting getting my passwords to work, it was so frustrating. I'm sitting there, I have a laptop, I have a tablet, I have a smartphone, and my friend came and helped me set everything up. And then I don't know if I was just fat thumbing it or what, but I couldn't get anything to open. And I said, you know what? I can't deal with this. I put it all down. I grabbed that same prison tablet, put my headphones in it, and put on a, some music and took a walk around my neighborhood for a couple hours by myself, just trying to process everything. And um, so I, I, I come to the, the street corner and I push the button on the, the crossing sign and it started talking to me. And I was just like, whoa, 
can take this sensory overload. But um, you know, I've had an amazing support group of people that have been patient with me and have had to get on different types of uh, computer sharing programs to walk me through how to do things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, today I feel much more competent, but I still have my issues where it's like an ongoing battle with technology. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I'm still battling technology today. So I just just find one of my nieces or nephews here, fix this. Yeah, there you go. I give things to my five-year-old daughter and she figures it out better than I can. But uh, so talking about your the status of your case now, I know you've been going through a process. The attorney general has been trying to get you sent back to prison. I think you you got some good news recently. Could you walk us through uh, what's the what the current status is? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, when when my story first came out in the Marshall Project, they interviewed me, and you know, I, I got the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, and you know, some of the the state senators and representatives and different attorneys. Uh, my affiliates at NYU, my affiliates at FSU School of Law, our College of Law. So many people just rallied around me and we, we really pushed. And um, it ended up resulting in my being resentenced again to time served to ensure that I would not be returned to the Department of Corrections. And that was based on two things. One, on the work that I did in prison, I created a number of programs that continue to help the inmate population. And for the work that I've done since I've come out of prison, where I'm continuing to work with people getting out of prison and working with the youth and young people to give them awareness about the dangers of using drugs and involving yourself in crime. And really just having your own voice, because a lot of times people want to follow behind somebody not knowing that that person's decisions can have such a detrimental on the rest detrimental effect on the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's so it's, it's a very unique case in itself, like you were saying before, um, which, which I think makes it interesting to look at and being resentenced to time served. So did your, did your co-defendant, he was out with, with no issue. So there was, they weren't trying to get him back in prison. Right. Yeah, he, he was released with no issues at all. And the, the real point of contention came from that the stipulation was written into his plea agreement, but it was not written into my plea agreement. Mm-hmm. And that's where the splitting of the hairs came from. And uh, as, as my attorney was saying, is this, this all became wired. These plea agreements became wired together when we had what's called a meeting of the minds. You know, when when my co-defendant pled out and they said, the state attorney said, okay, well, we're putting the stipulation there because this is the more culpable defendant. He should serve more time in prison. Mm-hmm. So once that happened, you kind of wire things together. It, essentially my argument became that I'm a third party beneficiary to this contract because it's stipulated in his. Now another defendant who has no tie to us could no way come and say, hey, well, I have a similar situation, but I don't know these guys, they, that that wouldn't work. But because it was just he and I, and we were sentenced together, I mean, we went mm-hmm. to our sentencing hearing and stood side by side and received sentence, and he received a longer sentence than me. So at that time, under the jurisprudence and law, in effect at the time, no judge under anybody at law could have handed down a shorter sentence to him. That would have been a, a violation, you know. So it, it became a point of contention, and a lot of um, 
legal wrangling over the last hundred days of my life that has been emotional, stressful. It, it's it's also been powerful for me because, you know, with the, the political climate in this country and the world right now mm-hmm. and being in prison as long as I was in prison, you know, you tend to lose faith in, in, in mankind. But the amount of people that stood with me, people of all colors, people of all nationalities, religions, um, belief systems, and just all types of stuff just came and said, you know what, this is not right what they're doing to you. That in itself made me have a, a much deeper respect for mankind in itself and mm-hmm. um, has really pushed me forward to keep working for prison reform and things that we can do to help people. Yeah, that's. I'm really glad you brought that up because this has definitely not been a, a standard, uh, you know, past year here. You've been out out of prison for about a year and going through that that whole appeal process at the same time that had to be pretty stressful. Um, I know you mentioned for the past past year you've been working. Um, I, I guess as a as a, a paralegal is that would that be the, the right yeah. the right term yeah. yeah. So so what do you want to do going forward? Where do you see yourself five ten years from now? Yeah. There, there's so many things that I want to do. Of course, I want to keep doing the work that I'm doing because uh, Prisoner Connections, what we do is we go straight back to the prison population and provide um, paralegal services at affordable cost. And we work with a consortium of attorneys who specialize in this area, but also are about helping people. So that's something that I definitely see myself staying in. But I'm also in the process of putting a new organization together with a couple of former prison officials, one being my former warden, who I've been done a lot of work with and who has supported me throughout this process to um, create our own podcast where she and I are going to go on there and talk about the differences between somebody being a prison administrator and the stuff that they have to go through and then being on the other side of it, somebody being in prison and the stuff that we have to go through. So it's our goal to start doing that, to get awareness out and to bring different guests in. Because one of the things that I really want to do is I want to be able to show the world the success stories of people that come out of prison. I mean, generally, all you see are the people that get out of prison and reoffend and go back. So -hmm. when they get arrested, the first thing they say is this person was just released. Why was he released? But what you never really hear about is the hundreds and hundreds of people that get out and that are now successful business owners, pillars mm-hmm. in their communities. They're working in, they're volunteering at the church, at the school, anywhere that they can add value. I had a guy come to my house today who I was incarcerated with as a successful um, like remodeling business. And he came in here and did some work for me. Nice. So, you know, these, these are some of the things that I want to get out. And likewise, I, I would like the opportunity to have, you know, current, and or former Department of Correction staff members come on and and tell their side of it. You know, because everybody thinks thinks and sometimes rightfully so maybe that, you know, all correctional officers are bad, but really they're not. Really there's there's a lot of people that are going there to do their job. And what I would tell people a lot of times is, you know, no most of us, maybe not all of us, because some people are wrongly convicted, but most of us did not get an invitation to come here. I know I didn't. Way I was living, I was I was get I was asking for an invitation to either the grave or to a prison cell, and you know I I never want to lose sight of that in my life moving forward. So these are some of the things that I want to move I want to do moving forward. Um, 
two of the main programs that I started when I was in prison was Storytime Dads, which is a book reading program. We were recording fathers reading books to their children and then sending a book and DVD home to the child at no cost to the state, to the family or the inmate. So what I found in doing that program is the majority of people in prison never had a children's story read to them. So as I'm watching these men read to their children, it's like they're fulfilling something in their own life. Mm-hmm. It's something that I want to work on to expand because I believe that if you can create a better family dynamic for those that are in prison, when they get out, they're going to better have the tools to succeed once they get out because they're not dealing with that past hurt or that drama of not being there. And it's just a small thing, but it, it is a thing that I see that's helped people. The other program is uh, SAGE. And in that program, we're teaching 14 classes a week on personal development, finances, um, communication, reflective listening to give men in prison the tools they need to succeed while they're out there so they'll have the tools to succeed when they get out. Mm-hmm. We're currently working on a program to create SAGE on the outside that will provide an outlet for men and women getting out to take these type of classes like financial classes, things that people don't know about, how, how to use a credit card, how to get a credit card, how to how to get your credit right. You know, so these these things are the things that are important to me. And it's ironic because I spent 13 years at um, Marion CI in Ocala, Florida. And I said, man, when I, when I get out of here, I'm never coming back to this town. I currently live in Ocala, Florida. And um, it's 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 really been it's it's really been good for me. Mm-hmm. It's really been good for me. So Yeah, well that's that's really awesome. And I mean there is a common theme in a lot of my guests that come on who have gotten out of prison. And I mean, it would be totally excusable for, you know, people like yourself who've been incarcerated just to kind of, you know, want to move on and and step away from it. But there's a common theme. People turn around and they want to help others who are still incarcerated, help them get out, help them land on their feet when they do get out. And I think that's really uh, admirable. So I tip my hat to you for that. Um, And to go back to the podcast idea, I, I love that. I mean, any more, of a light we can shine on, uh, you know, people who found success after prison is, is that's phenomenal. And especially the angle with uh, doing it with someone, uh, a prison official, a prison warden, uh, something that I really hadn't thought about. I had like a, we had a town hall on my show a couple months ago with uh, addiction recovery export experts and a, a prison warden and a DA and uh, chief of police, a bunch of different people. But the prison warden really blew me away when she was talking about she she was talking about her prison, the prison population. She and she said half the people in this prison shouldn't be here, and I was like, wow, to hear a prison warden say that. That's, I mean, because you just assume they're just like ah, let's keep all these people in here, and it's, no, her, her hands are tied. I mean, it's not like she can flip a switch and, and let her, everyone walk free. So that was that was eye opening for me to hear that from her. And, you know, it's, 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 I'm, I'm glad you said that because they have a tough job. You know, there, there's a, a lot that you have to manage. There's a lot that they have to do. And, you know, my last five, six years in prison, I worked closely with the administration. I worked closely with the classification, with the, the, the captains, the OICs of the shift, with all the different things we were doing. And you find that a lot of people really don't need to be there. A lot of people need to be receiving proper mental health treatment. A lot of people would be served better if they were in rehab instead of going to prison for possession of marijuana, you know, different things like that. Um, do I believe that there is a place for 
prison. I do believe that there's a place for prison, but I believe that it's a place that should be a place to help people be successful citizens mm-hmm. and not just locked up and, and marginalized and warehoused. And, um, you know, so that's, that's one of the biggest pushes with me. It was, it was really interesting about two months ago of, uh, he's now retired, but he was a shift captain at my camp and he was one of the, the tougher guys. And he came out on Facebook and he publicly supported me and said, essentially, I couldn't find a better man to stand behind who I've watched help not only inmates, but staff members and what he does. And a bunch of people on my page, of course, they were incarcerated with me. They know this captain and they were just blown away by that. But personally, he messaged me and he says, listen, man, I'm I'm not the smartest guy or anything like that. And I know I was an a-hole sometimes, but I would really like to talk to you about prison reform and anything that you put together. I would love to be at that table with you. So, um, so, so that gives me, that gives me some incentive. That gives me some courage that what I'm doing is the right thing. And something that I constantly tell the man in prison, if you keep doing the right thing for the right reason, the right stuff is going to happen. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so before I let you go, I know you're working on a lot of things. There's a lot of things you plan on doing in the future. If there's anything you want to plug right now, I don't, I don't know if there's anything that you can't plug right now or anything else you want to mention before I let you go. Yeah, there, there, there are a few things. You know, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank um, Marianne Gennaro, my future mother-in-law, and um, my fiance, Marianna Kuchma. You know, I, they have stood by me through this situation and endured all of the emotional ups and downs. And uh, I just, I have so much love and admiration for them. And I just thank them for believing in me enough to one, allow me an opportunity to be with her daughter and two, for her daughter, allow me the opportunity to be with her and build a life with her. I also want to thank Ron Baker, who is my mentor, my friend, my boss, uh, my partner. What he's done with Prisoner Connections is simply amazing what I've watched him doing in the last two weeks, I've been running the business while he's on vacation. So I have a whole new respect for him because it is alive. And uh, of mm-hmm. course, you know, my legal team, Mark O'Mara, Rick Sitka, Sharon Stedman, Roseanne Ecker. I, I could go on and on with the amount of people who, who have supported me, man. I just, I just want to thank everybody for signing the petition, for taking the time to send me comments, for your prayers, for your support. And, and just, you know, I'm humbled by it and I'm encouraged to, keep doing the work that I'm doing. I definitely want to thank you, John, for what you do with this podcast, because it's it's so important that people like you who haven't had the experiences in there, but have the compassion for it to get the story out there. That's so important because, you know, whether we like it or not, it doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you're on. The majority of people in prison at some time are going to be released. Mm-hmm. So what we need coming back into the community are people that are going to be good citizens to whatever state you're in. So it takes the community to get behind that and give them that push, give them that incentive. So my hat's off to you for that. Well, thanks. I appreciate it, Richard. And I really do look forward to see, you know, what you do in the next two, five, 10 years, because I think there's it's a lot of potential and uh, I'm excited to see where, where you take this. So Absolutely. thanks for coming well, on the show. Absolutely. And hopefully when I get my pad- podcast coming up, I can have you as a guest on my show. Sounds good. All right. Fantastic. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of Felony Friday. Another awesome episode. Just want to remind everyone before you get going here off to your next uh, next podcast or your shuffle or whatever it is you're doing with your uh, your day today. I want to thank you for giving me your time and uh, 
listening to this interview, I want to ask you, please, to share this with a friend. The only way that we're going to expand this message, that we're going to reform this criminal justice system, is by sharing interviews just like this with your network. Very easy to do. And I also want to ask you to please, if you have not yet checked it out, you need to go to the Lions of Liberty store. It's lionsofliberty.store. We have a bunch of new t-shirt designs, really interesting stuff, really eye-catching designs. Uh, Of course, our taxation is death shirt has been a hit. It's selling like crazy. We now have the, uh, the tax on wax off shirt. Just awesome. And and there's more coming. We're really trying to get into uh, what we're calling it the Lions of Liberty brand of shirts. So you're going to get the cool design on the front. And then up, just real small, up by the tag on the back, you're going to have our Are You Ready to Roar logo. Uh, We're trying to, you know, take another angle here and influence people through, uh, you know, some snazzy T-shirts. So check it out, lionsofliberty.store. And remember, if you're in the Lions of Liberty Pride, you get 20% off. So for as little as five bucks a month, you're going to get 20% off all your t-shirt orders. So to join the Pride, go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And with that being said, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Have a great weekend or week or whenever you're listening to this. Just have an awesome day. I'll talk to you next week. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up. And the fire is a liberty burning.